who are sixth grade and under can make their way to the front and they will head upstairs with our leadership where we will have kids crew a time of worship designed specifically for them. And if you are new with us today and you're thinking, where are they going? What's happening here, right? They're all just running away. Uh, First of all, you're welcome. Uh, But really, uh, we do this because this gives us a strategic opportunity to connect with kids on their level. And so our leaders are skilled at doing that. They're able to take the Bible story and present it in such a way that kids can understand it, that they're able to interact with it as well. And and it really is a great thing that we do. And so you will find them after the service this morning. They will be just beyond the exit on this east side on the second level. So if you make your way out the door that you just saw them head out. There's a staircase on the other side. You go up the stairs, and as you come up the stairs, there you're at the sort of the elevator landing area, and that's the entrance to the kids' crew room there on the second floor. And that's where they'll be when we're done today for you to go and pick them up. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 this morning, the text that we're going to study. We are working our way through the gospel of Mark. And so as you turn there in your Bible, I I just want to uh, invite you to do that. We'll be to that text in a moment. If you don't have a Bible today, of course, we'll have the scriptures on the screen for you to be able to follow along, but you can also take one of the blue Bibles that are in the, in the back of the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 852, and you'll find our text for this morning there as well. Today is April Fool's Day, which seems like kind of an odd uh, occurrence that Easter Sunday would fall on April Fool's Day. Doesn't it seem a, a little bit weird? Have you ever pulled an April Fool's prank on someone and maybe it didn't work exactly like what you had planned, right? You, you had this, this great idea for a gag and, and maybe in reality it, it just didn't work quite like you thought it would. There's a story that in 2002, some radio DJs on a radio station in Kansas City on April Fool's Day decided that they were going to play a joke on their listeners. And so they made an announcement over the air that morning on their radio program that the local water supply contained high levels of dihydrogen monoxide, which is H2O, by the way, And that the side effects of dihydrogen monoxide included sweating, urination, and skin pruning. They encouraged people to be aware. And what happened was their joke backfired on them. Hundreds of people called both the local radio station and and the city water treatment plant complaining about the unusually high levels of dihydrogen monoxide in their water. So there was too much water in their water, basically, was the complaint. Well, so what happened is that this radio station, uh, to, uh, to deal with the bad PR, they pulled these DJs off the air, and they actually had to go off the air for a period of time, the story goes. Well, in 2013, some radio DJs in Florida decided that they would that they would try the same stunt again. And so they did essentially the same thing on their radio station in Florida. And this time it ended even worse because they actually had felony charges brought against them for the backlash that was caused by essentially telling people that they needed to be aware of the dangerously high levels of water in their drinking water. 
Now, that may seem ridiculous to you, but isn't that really what April Fool's is about, right? In a lot of ways, we think about the ridiculousness of some of the pranks and the stunts and things that people try to pull on April Fool's Day. Well, let's be sure this morning that this is no April Fool's joke that we're talking about, right? On this day, on the first Easter, when the disciples and, and, and the women went to the tomb to deal with the body of Jesus, and they discovered that he was no longer there, as the angel told him, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. This was not the ultimate April Fool's prank. This was, in fact, The truth that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of Man had risen from the dead. But before we get to the point of of seeing his resurrection and understanding the implications of his resurrection, we first must deal with his death. And that's where we are in Mark. Now we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark for many weeks now. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon where we saw that Jesus predicted three different times, in fact, in Mark chapter 8, again in Mark chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, that Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection. He told his disciples and his followers that he would die, but on the third day he would be resurrected from the dead. Last Sunday, we saw his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on that day when rather than riding into the city as the conquering, victorious warrior that they expected, the the king who had come to set his people free. Instead, he rode in as the king of peace on the back of a donkey, but no doubt a king who had come to usher in a new reality by bringing his kingdom. Well, we see today the culmination of those events In Mark chapter 15. And so I want to begin reading in verse 24 of Mark 15. And we'll actually read through the end of chapter 15. And through the first six verses of chapter 16. Because this tells for us the story both of Jesus' crucifixion. And then ultimately of his resurrection. Let's read together. Mark 15 beginning in verse 24. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now the third hour would have been about 9 o'clock in the morning. That doesn't mean 3 a.m. This is counting from the break of day. It's a traditional, uh, a traditional way that, that the ancients would have uh, recounted the day. So at the third hour, at 9 o'clock, they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, the chief of priests with the scribes, mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, this is now about noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which would have meant, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger of, of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was on the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the courts to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go up to anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so it was that on this first Easter morning that they went to to deal with the body of Jesus. And instead what they found, he was not there. He was risen. He was resurrected, raised from the dead into life. And as we think about this story, it's it's the culmination, isn't it? It's the climax of all that we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. Let me briefly catch you up on what you've missed if you've not been with us in our study of Mark. We see that Jesus was born unto a virgin named Mary who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. But Joseph was not his biological father. Instead, an angel of the Lord appeared to Mary telling her that she would bear a son and that she was to call his name Jesus and that he would be the savior of his people. Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. And as they raised him, he grew and, and growing in, in, in both wisdom and in knowledge in favor with God and men. The gospel writer Luke tells us that doesn't come from Mark, but that comes from Luke gospel. We see that Jesus grew into being a, a young man. And then in his adulthood, around the age of 30, Jesus began what we refer to as his earthly ministry. And so for a period of three years, he traveled about initially in the area where he was raised, which was north of the city of Jerusalem, in an area that we would call Galilee, because it was located around the Sea of Galilee. And he called unto himself 12 men that he appointed to be his disciples. And these disciples he charged that they might do the very same things that he had done. And so we even saw in Mark chapter 3 that he commissioned his disciples that they might 
that they might heal the sick, that they might perform other miracles, and ultimately they might proclaim the gospel that Jesus had come to save his people and establish his kingdom. And so much of that three years was spent in a series of events where Jesus would heal people and he would preach these messages that would draw great crowds and he would perform many miracles. And his teaching, teaching was puzzling because he taught like someone who had authority, an authority that, that people didn't know and that they didn't understand. And yet his words carried this message of hope and promise, a message unlike those of his day, unlike his contemporaries. And what we see is that because of this message and because of the following that he gained, Jesus drew the attention of the local religious leaders who began to work on a plan that they might put him away, that they might deal with him because he became a threat to their power. He threatened their power and, and the establishment that, that empowered them. And so they began to look for ways to trap Jesus. They began to look for ways to have him arrested ultimately and put away. And ultimately, they accomplished this through convincing one of his 12, a man named Judas, to betray Jesus. After he was betrayed by Judas, he was put on trial. And the ultimate culmination of this trial is that he was convicted, condemned and convicted to die. And not just any death, but crucifixion. And that's where we pick up the story this morning, as Jesus is being crucified. And so as we look through this story, you'll find that there are three points to the message this morning. Three important keys to understanding not only what is happening in this story, but ultimately how we ought to respond in light of this story. And I want us to look at these this morning together. The first one it is so important that we, as we look into the story of Jesus' crucifixion, that we see this truth. That Jesus was punished that you might be forgiven. Now, in many ways, we understand that Jesus didn't deserve to die on the cross. Though, though those who were opposed to him, the religious leaders, trumped up these charges against him and convinced one of his own to betray him. The reality is that Jesus was sinless and perfect. He had never done any wrong. In fact, he is the only man who has ever lived who lived a sinless, perfect life. And because he was sinless, because he was perfect, because he never sinned in any way, there was no sin in him, he didn't, he didn't deserve to die. Because death is punishment ultimately for our sin, our rebellion against God. The New Testament scriptures teach us this. And yet, it was the plan of God the Father that he would pour out his wrath on Jesus in order that he might lavish his grace upon you. And so Jesus was punished that you might be forgiven. And not just any punishment, but the most brutal, the most vile, the most torturous form of punishment known to man. See, the Romans were were a mighty nation. And they didn't gain that might by winning friends and influencing people, so to speak. The Romans were conquerors. They were a warrior people. And as they conquered people, they would put the boot to them. They would, they would stamp them down. They would deal 
ever so severely with those who tried to rise up, those who were treasonous, those who rebelled. And the ultimate form of punishment reserved for those who would rebel against Rome was crucifixion. See, crucifixion was not just death by execution, but it was death by torture in order to make an example of the one who was being executed. And so not only would they kill you, but they would kill you and hang you high so that others would see that this is what happens to those who dare to defy Rome. And that's exactly what Jesus endured for our sake. We know the story, that he was beaten, that he was scourged, that he was physically punished and tortured, made to carry his cross, and then, as it tells us here in Mark, at the ninth hour, crucified, hung up on this cross. They nailed him physically to the cross, driving a spike that we would think looks much like a, a railroad spike into his wrists and into his feet to nail him to the cross, ultimately there, hanging him naked and exposed for others to see, for them to witness this brutal, torturous death, so that no one else would be able to deny that this is what happens to those who dare rise up against Rome. And yet it was the will of God, we understand from the words of the prophet Isaiah, that Jesus would be crushed. John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John, tells us, that no one took his life from him, but willingly he laid it down for us. He chose to be punished that you might be forgiven. Secondly, we see in this story, this passage, not only was Jesus punished, but he was rejected. Jesus was rejected that you might be accepted. Not only was he punished at the hands of sinful men, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, punished, mocked, beaten, betrayed by those he came to save, but also we see that God rejected him. And so Jesus cried out as the sixth hour, after darkness had covered the land for three hours, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the contrast between the hour of Jesus' death and the hour of his birth. What do we see at the hour of Jesus' birth? There was great light. There was a starry host in the sky and a bright light and the angels appeared to shepherds in the field and they proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. There was brightness. There was radiance in the sky that evening as they proclaimed the birth of a Savior. And what do we see in the middle of the day at, at noon on the day of his death? Darkness. I don't think it's any coincidence that the Bible repeatedly describes God as light. Again, John, the gospel writer, writes that he is light and in him there is no darkness. God is described as light. Jesus himself, John writes, is the light of men. Jesus was the embodiment of God perfectly in, in a person, both fully God and fully man. But in this moment, as God the Father rejected him, as God the Father 
poured out his wrath on him. In the absence of God, as God removed his favor from him, in the absence of that favor of God, we see darkness. Darkness. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus understood, of course, why he was being forsaken. But in doing this, he demonstrates for us both, I I believe, the, the intense pain that he is suffering but also, importantly, in, in a theological sense, he's, even in this, he's teaching us, again, that God poured out his wrath on the spotless lamb. He was rejected that you might be accepted. The father turned his back on Jesus so that he might never have to turn his back on you. And this is the This is the the climax of the story. Naturally, this feels like the low point, right? Ironically even, because now Jesus has died. He's breathed his last breath. And for the better part of three days, his disciples wondered, was it all a lie? Did Did we fall for a hoax? Was this nothing but... Was this nothing but the ultimate deception? Brokenhearted, desperate. They clung to the hope that he would come back again. And yet, there must have been uncertainty. This is the the denouement, if you will, of the story. If you know what that that term means. This is the, the high point of the story, although antithetically it doesn't seem so, because we know that this is the moment where Jesus is, is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. See, we might try to pay the price for our sin. We might try to, to do good and, and make penance somehow, but ultimately all of our good deeds, all of our penance, all of our ways fall short. Because we are sinful. We're imperfect because we're, we're a flawed sacrifice. And yet Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. The perfect sacrifice. The spotless lamb. And so on that third day, that Easter morning, as we would now call it, as they went to the tomb, wondering to themselves, how will we move the stone? What will we do? What they found to their surprise was that the stone was rolled away, that Jesus was no longer there, that he was risen indeed, resurrected from the dead. We see that Jesus was resurrected, that you might have life. Don't you see? This is the point of the story. This is is what it's all about. This is the, the hinge upon which all of the rest of creation and history hangs that the sinless perfect lamb of god gave his life to pay the price for our sin and then on the third day just as he promised he was raised from the dead resurrected that we might have life the father did not immediately rescue jesus 
It's maybe perhaps what we would expect, that just at this moment, just when you think that Jesus is about to die, that the, the host of heaven would come down and angels would rescue him and prove once for all. And yet, that's not what happened. Jesus died physically, dead. They pierced his side to prove that he was dead. They wrapped his lifeless body in a linen shroud, it tells us. They laid him in a borrowed tomb. And yet, true to his word, true to his promise, he was resurrected on the third day. His resurrection provides for us rescue from our sin. So what do we do with this message? What, how are we to respond to this story? You know, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, at the day of Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit falls on the believers who are waiting in the upper room, they went out and they began to preach the message. And as Peter stood and boldly proclaimed the message of Jesus in the temple court, those who were listening, it tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that they were cut to the heart and they asked him, what must we do? And Peter's response to them in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 was, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin." Maybe today you've been cut to the heart by this story. You've heard this message, even perhaps a message that you've heard many times before. But today, as you're hearing this story, the Holy Spirit is driving these words home in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. Maybe, maybe this connects with you and there's a reality to, to this payment of Jesus that was for your sin you realize you've never truly responded in the way that Peter describes. You've never repented of your sin in the name of Jesus Christ and believed in him. And today, would you make this the day that you would respond by faith, giving your life to Jesus Christ, surrendering all that you have to him? I would simply say the words of Peter recorded in Acts Chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be, baptized, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus today. In a moment, we'll have a time of response, a time that we call our invitation. And in our time of response, in our invitation today, I would invite you, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, that you would make this the day. What better day than Easter Sunday the day that we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. What better way to celebrate that resurrection than to surrender your life to Jesus by faith, trusting in him, believing in his promise of eternal life for those who call on him as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're here today and you know that you've repented of your sins. You've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. You know that he is Savior but perhaps today you would say, if I'm being honest, he's savior of my life. But I really can't say that he's truly Lord because I'm not walking in fellowship with him. Maybe you've, maybe you've turned away. You've walked away for whatever reason. And today, on Easter Sunday, 
What better way to respond to the perfect gift of God, the sinless, spotless lamb that was broken for your sin, punished and rejected and ultimately resurrected so that you might have life? What better way to respond than to turn your heart back to him? Come back. If you say, I've wandered away, I've turned my back, I've, I've walked away, I'm not living in fellowship, then today, would you come back to him? Return to Jesus. Repent. Return to him. In our invitation, our altar will be open. Maybe you want to come and you want to just kneel here at the altar and, and you want to confess to God. Lord, I, I've, I've walked away. I've, I've been guilty of, of dealing lightly with the sacrifice that you gave for me, for my sin. I'm guilty of, of just living how I want and not walking in fellowship with you, not truly living in obedience to your word and your will. Then today, would you return to him? Our altar will be open. Our staff will be here at the front. If you would like to make today the day that you respond by faith, surrendering your life to Jesus, or if perhaps maybe today is the day that you come back to him, the day that you return to him and, and you get back on the path that he has for you, then would you respond by faith and obedience to him as we sing this song of invitation in a moment? The song itself is a beautiful song. It's one that, that we've not sung before, but it just says simply, Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And even as we sing those words today, if you want to turn to him, and my challenge is that you would come as we sing. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You paid the